0: is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a week since paying passengers have been on Skyline. The city says it's averaging about 32 to 3,300 riders a day during the week and about 4,000 on weekends. This week, we hear from riders about how their experience has been. The Hawaii Bicycling League decided to mix the old and the new, organizing a ride to the old Eva Sugar Train, and then followed up with a preview ride on Skyline. Travis Council is the executive director for HBL. He talked about what members had to say about their experience.
1: We've done the historic train ride for a few years largely to celebrate the Leeward Bikeway, so a bike path that's looking to extend and is currently under construction to extend the Pearl Harbor Historic Trail out to Eva and ultimately out to Kapolei, even ultimately to is the goal. So, we did this ride recently just as a summer kind of fun activity for families and and people that want to, you know, see the paths on the the west side and go out and experience the train which Surprisingly, a lot of people who even have lived here for a long time haven't tried that historic train out.
0: But I imagine, though, it was just a nice juxtaposition, the old and the new, because you folks got a chance to jump on early on uh, just to get a look-see
1: yeah so that was maybe just only a week after we got to experience the the skyline firsthand and brought our bikes and tested out the bike features the, there's a ramp on the staircase to roll your bike up there's some hooks on the each train to hang your bike similar to the bus but inside so yeah quite different uh, you know a hundred years or so different between the two of them no air conditioning on the historic one so uh, quite a unique view I'd say that's actually a similarity is the kind of view that you get from both of these. Obviously, the Skyline's more elevated, but a little different than driving in a car or even you're riding your bike. You just get to enjoy that scenery a little bit more.
0: So did you have a consensus on how Skyline went for members of the Bicycling League?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it was an awesome experience all around. And I do think that a bicycle is, is going to be a really cool kind of cheat code with the rail, if you will, an awesome uh, tool to kind of go that extra mile. As we're all aware, the rail is, this is an initial phase. Obviously, it's not all the way to the airport or, or to downtown yet, but I do think with the phase that is open, a lot of people that live around there or, or want to go out and go to the, the mall at the end or uh, any of the other uh, places along the way, bringing your bike with you, and you are allowed to bring your bike on the train, which is great, on Skyline, just gives you an extra tool when you get to where you want to go being able to pedal that extra half mile or mile wherever you're headed, great tool.
0: And so what kind of input were you folks able to give the city just on, you know, your wish
1: list? Yeah, so definitely in the initial kind of design phases, we did talk with the city a lot and with Hart around. Some of the facilities that we've seen, uh, we've done trips to Europe and other US mainland cities, looking at the different infrastructure there. So similar things to what I mentioned earlier with the bike ramp. So this is an elevated rail, so you need a way to get your bicycle up to the station. So it's nothing fancy. It's just a little kind of concrete ramp on the side of the stairs where you can push your bicycle up so you don't have to carry it or anything like that. The hooks within the car, we wanted to ensure that there was a, a place where you could either you know, hang it or you're allowed to keep it with you at all times as well. And then some of the, the stations, most of the stations have bike, just regular bike parking. We did push for a little bit more of the you know, secure or lockers. Those might come at a future phase, but didn't make it into this initial stop.
0: I think, yeah, aren't those meant for like Middle Street, I thought?
1: Exactly, yeah, kind of expanding on some of the bike infrastructure that exists at Middle Street and really making it more of a, that hub where you could ride to it and leave your bike in a secure location. So, you know, a code to get into a storage unit kind of feeling.
0: Have your members been able to jump on Skyline, you know, past the grand opening weekend?
1: Yeah, so we've heard from a few people. Actually, one that's quite cool, a Boy Scout group, troop, did a a one-way bicycle ride. So where they took the Skyline from the stadium area all the way out to the end and then rode their bike back on the path. So kind of a cool opportunity to, to kind of get this, unique view and then uh, about a 10 mile, 12 mile bike ride on mostly multi-use path all the way back, which is kind of a great way to do it. So we've had some members that have done that, some members that live on the, the west side who, who use it as a, you know, a quicker way, both either biking or driving, to get more town side.
0: And then now we are seeing more people on electric scooters, we're seeing e-bikes, so I don't know any difference you know with a regular bike
1: yeah so not too much in the way of on the rail or on on the skyline Uh, you know obviously e-bikes are a little heavier so having the the ramp there is an elevator as well great way to get the bike up there and that does increase the distance or decrease the effort to get to your house or wherever you might be going afterwards but yeah we're seeing a lot more people on electric bikes the scooters etc you know electric mobility if you will and we're excited about that i think there's some definitions and some things that we need to work on to, to better define what is an e-bike, where they can ride, those types of things, but that's uh, something we're working on.
0: And until the rail goes to places where a good majority of us need to go, what are you doing to encourage your members, let's say, to maybe jump on rail at the stadium and then go do the bike paths out on the leeward side?
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely looking to organize group rides to do that. We have some of our smaller, more casual groups that are already doing that within our membership, you know, just more as a, a fun kind of a attraction, if you will, to go and ride out to it and check that out. But we're hoping that more and more people use it just in general and commuting. We're really excited. A lot of, we've heard from folks at Ford Island and other places, the military base there, that people are taking it from the EVA area and even with their bike or walking onto base there as well. So, kind of a cool cool option. Do
0: you have any numbers on that?
1: I don't have any numbers on that, but I did see that the military base, especially uh, the Hickam, joint Pearl Harbor Hickam base, is ultimately going to be offering transit passes to offset some parking costs. So excited about that.
0: Anything else or any suggestions that you made to the city just based on your initial, you know, scoping?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other projects we're working on is the TOD. So that's Transit Oriented Development uh, Project. That's a city department uh, really looking at the different rail stations and stops and how we can improve the neighborhoods around there, ultimately creating better ways bike walk, etc., cetera, ways to get down to the station itself. So we've been working a lot on those TOD designs and plans to really make sure that bikes are at the forefront there. They are a great tool. We'd ultimately love to see bike share or some sort of bike infrastructure that you could ride to and from the train station if you didn't need to bring your bike with you and kind of looking at those different ways of making those hubs bike and pedestrian friendly.
0: Are you hearing anything more uh, from members who are saying, yeah, well, we think it's actually faster to just bring our bikes as opposed to waiting for the bus in the, you know, the spoken rail system that they're trying to work up?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we definitely have a few people that, historically just commuted either by bike and bus who are definitely using the rail now i don't know if they are opting to just use the bike to get to the station but i do know some of the bus systems changed to incorporate those rail stations but haven't heard that yet you know generally speaking we're happy to see transit in general i do think bikes especially given that this one's open to you know people bringing bikes on it at any given time there's some transit stations there are systems that have restrictions and things so thankfully we don't have any of that you can bring your bike on at any time we're excited about that and just it's another piece to the puzzle, giving people more options of ways to get around to connect people, connect spaces. We're excited about that. That whole multimodal thing. Exactly. (laughs) Multimodal shift and those last mile and all those other pieces that just make it easier to, to get around, better places to live, make our communities a little more vibrant. All
0: right. Well, Travis, thank
1: you so much. Of course. Thank you.
0: That was Travis Council, head of the Hawaii Bicycling League. And, you know, our rail system is said to be the only one in the world that can accommodate surfboards. That point was underscored by former Mayor Kirk Caldwell when we talked to him on Grand Opening Day.
2: Some teenager in Waipahu, my hometown, will get on the train with his surfboard, tell his mom, I'm going to go to Ala Wana Bowls to go surfing. I'll be back this afternoon. The train has surf racks. I understand it's the only system that has surf racks built in the world. And, you know, he'll go surfing and he won't even think twice about it. It'll be just something you do. But that is a great dramatic change in how people will live here. And, you know, change is difficult. And I think that's why there was a lot of opposition all the way along.
0: You know, we wondered about that Surfboard thing. And so our uh, conversation p- producer, Stephanie Hahn, decided to check it out. She braved the crowds on opening weekend with her Costco Foamy in tow. Skyline will someday in the future be useful for those who love to surf, but who may live a bit of a distance from the water. And of course, Skyline hasn't been built out to the ocean yet.
3: So I brought my surfboard. Uh, you know, you'll be the first for me today, so I can't wait to see. We'll okay. follow you on. Yeah, awesome. That would be great. You got okay. A whole- yeah, I got the whole Surfport, I would recommend always through the handicap gate because it is going to take an extra 2 seconds to open. I mean, it
0: stays open an extra 2 seconds. So, okay, that's great to know. Great to know. Thank you.
2: It's been uh, it took a while for it to be built and I've been on other rails and other places from Australia to the mainland. Just to see how it compares and everything, yeah.
3: 30 seconds. That's what my daughter said. Oh yeah, you must be fast.
4: The rail is a great addition to the community, uh, being able to connect a lot more isolated neighborhoods and and really increase uh, public transportation. It's really helpful, really useful.
3: It's safer to ride the elevator. People should not go on the escalator in, with a surfboard.
0: Well, today's pretty crowded, but you gotta figure out where you're going with it because I don't know if people have walked with their board, in Waikiki, and people aren't really prepared to see a surfboard on the train right now,
5: probably because it doesn't go to the water. Yeah, it's a pretty good system. I mean, it's it's pretty fast from what, it, what we thought it would be slower, but it's pretty fast, pretty efficient. It's a bit wobbly, but I mean, at least it gets us to, from point A to B, C, D, we, whatever. You know, we just, we're just waiting for uh, it to be totally completed. I think that would be it would be really, really efficient, in moving people around and less traffic, you know, on the freeways and roadways, yeah. But yeah, all in all, it's not bad. It's a pretty good system. Okay, a lot of people are actually looking at the surfboard and not because it's a great surfboard, because they're wondering what the heck I'm doing with a surfboard when it's not going anywhere near the water. But that's okay. We're just testing it out. Thirty seconds. Yes. You just have to
0: make sure that oh, that's my station. So I have to get ready and then just stand by the door. This train has arrived
4: at Kuala East Kapalai Station. Oh, this is the Doors will open on the right side. Okay.
0: That was HBR Stephanie Hahn trying out Skyline, the world's only rail system with surfboard racks. We should note that she braved the crush of the crowds on opening weekend. And the city says she was the only one. So she made history bringing her surfboard on that weekend. And her takeaway the need for better signage, and maybe those signs will appear by the time the system hits Ala Moana. Reminder, if you're curious about the uh, Skyline system and have not yet jumped aboard, the rail runs weekdays from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. and on the weekends from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. A great opportunity to check out the swap meet at Aloha Stadium. The headlines swirling around the film industry have been negative as of late, a film trailer set on fire, and union bosses flexing their muscle against the state's film commissioner. But today, our reality check looks at a bright spot on the set of the movie industry and efforts to grow our local pool of talent. Stuart Yurton joins us today. Morning, Stuart.
6: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So yeah, t- tell <laughs> us about what you've learned uh, about this uh, yeah. uh, interesting group.
6: Yeah, so the group is called Ohina Labs. It's really small. It's a volunteer organization. Uh, They're largely run out of the Nella Media Group in Chinatown. And they are essentially helping uh, budding director, writers, and producers uh, make short films they can use as calling cards to launch their careers. And it's working. People are getting good jobs. Uh, with uh, companies like Disney as writers uh, because of this program.
0: So baby steps.
6: Yeah, baby steps, but they're baby steps that go from people being film babies to full-fledged film adults with big jobs in the industry.
0: And it usually starts with a short for their portfolio.
6: Yeah, that's right. So, so essentially the program works like this. Um, somebody writes a screenplay, they have a screenplay for a short film. It might be a 15-page screenplay. They apply. They submit it to the program. The program accepts 10 people. Those 10 people then are matched with mentors for an extent, for an intensive program. Only a few days, but the mentors are people who write uh, movie scripts for uh, things like Marvel, uh, Marvel Pictures, the big, you know, big-budget movies like Thor and as well as Netflix movies like Narcos and that sort of thing. So the mentors work with the screenwriters, the young screenwriters, they try to brush up the scripts, they ask tough questions, they workshop these things. The young, uh, they call them fellows, the fellows then make a pitch as if they were pitching to. Uh, industry executives who might fund a movie, and based on the pitch, uh, one of the ten is selected, and this Ohina Labs uh, produces their movie.
0: And this is important. Why?
6: Well, it's important because it's very, it's relatively easy these days, relatively, to get a job as crew on a film. That part is not hard. There are lots of jobs. The hard thing is getting a job in a position they call above the line. It's called above the line because of where these positions appear on the budget of a film, but to get one of these above the line jobs is really hard. No one is gonna hand over the keys to a uh, production to somebody with no experience directing, writing, or producing.
0: And so, gosh, I mean, I know there's been, you know, lots of uh, stories uh, recently just about, you know, trying to, keeping, uh, trying to keep the money uh, here in Hawaii, so this is part of that picture.
6: Yeah, that's this is exactly part of the picture. I mean, if you look at the money, you know, in 2020, Dbed uh, did a study and found that of about 100, and almost 130 million dollars spent by productions in Hawaii, um, about 36 million leaked out of the economy. In other words, the money was paid for people who aren't who don't live here; they're not at least live here full time the money ended up going back somewhere else so this is a way to try to keep more of that money here
0: and so this group is just kind of doing it on its own I mean trying to you know grow the it's, pool
6: it's doing it on its own it's all volunteers they've got people again from uh, Marvel and other big uh, um, productions volunteering their time coming out to Hawaii uh, staying here and working with the young people Um, The company itself, is they're just hustling around doing this. They've got Nella Media Group supporting them with space and equipment and uh, their expertise and people. And the last two years, again, they've done this. No state money, no city money, really all on their own. They do have support from something called Pacific Islanders and Communications. That could be a whole other story, um, what PIC is doing. But, again, Pick and Ohina Labs are the two entities really pulling this off right now.
0: Okay, so if we want to uh, uh, get to where we need to go, we might consider um, looking at what this uh, little film lab is doing. It's like the little engine that could.
6: It is indeed. <laughs> All right.
0: Okay, thanks so much, Stuart.
6: Thank you, Catherine.
0: Uh, that was reporter Stuart Yurton uh, with today's Reality Check. Read the story uh, at civilbeat.org. I've seen day octopus swimming about when you're in the ocean but what about when the Sun sets and the moon peeps out well the native species of squid likes to come out after dark it's been said that they hide by day and hunt by night joining us to talk about these creatures is HPR's Katherine kluyt Pactol. good morning
2: good morning beautiful day here on Molokai
0: yes uh, so I understand you have some of these squid over there
2: that's what I understand as well. You know, I haven't seen them myself, but now I'm really intrigued to go look uh, for them. So the Hawaiian bobtail squid is a tiny nocturnal species, as you mentioned. It lives in shallow reef flats, so there's a lot of those on Molokai and all across Hawaii. Um, they eat small shrimp and crabs and worms. They are cephalopods, like other squid and octopus. And many people have said, oh, they're hey, but they're actually not hei'ei. They do have eight arms, um, like what many people... Consider as octopus or hay, but um, other people have said, "Oh, they maybe they're like a baby squid, <laughs> but they're actually fully grown. They're just really, really tiny and cute. They're a couple of inches long at most, and many are even smaller than that. And they're kind of nondescript. They're reddish or brown in color, um, not too much to look at, really. But." Um, and many people have never even seen them, but they have this really incredible symbiotic relationship with a glowing bacteria called Vibrio fischeri that lives in their bodies. And a graduate student researcher, Hannah Osland, uh, told me that this bacteria doesn't just cause a random glow. It's carefully calibrated within the squid's body.
7: The symbiosis allows them to counter-illuminate so they're able to put light out from their dorsal side or their belly side that matches the amount of moonlight coming out during a given night. So they're able to adjust it so that if you're a predator that's kind of on the ocean floor swimming around at night and you were to look up and there's a bobtail squid there, theoretically, it'd be putting them out the amount of light that matches the moonlight. So it would disrupt the bobtail squid shadow. So then you wouldn't be able to see it.
0: Uh, kind of a camouflage thing.
2: Exactly. It's, it's really fascinating. Oslin uh, described it as, as a conversation, actually, that's happening between these bacteria and the host cells of the squid. And that conversation is managed within this specialized light organ of the squid that actually attracts this bacteria into their bodies. This phenomenon has been well-researched in labs, but the lives of Hawaiian bobtail squid in the wild haven't been studied very much.
7: There's not been that much stuff done with their ecology or their behavior or kind of their life history in the islands. Like we don't know their movement patterns, you know, do they stay at these shallow areas? Do they go deeper? Are there populations in deeper water? And it just happens that we collect the ones that are shallow because they're the ones that are easy to collect. There's been, you know, the basic stomach content sampling of what they eat, but that was done in like 1983. So more specifics of what they eat or how they interact with each other.
0: You know, and it really seems that we just don't know a lot about what, uh, you know, lives in the ocean.
2: It's incredible to think, you know, we we know so much about the world, but the ocean is really, has a lot of unknowns. So, Osland doesn't plan to answer all of those questions that she just asked with her research that's coming up. But she does have a couple of areas that she wants to learn more about. Um, one of those has to do with research that was done over 20 years ago um, that pointed to a possible genetic or morphological difference in bobtail squid depending on where they live, which is really interesting. So during that study uh, 20 years ago, there was uh, they study looked at two different groups on Oahu and the researcher found that one group had a slightly longer mantle length. So mantle is, is sort of the top of the squid, how, how people measure uh, the length of the animal. And... That pointed to some possible genetic distinctions uh, between these two groups that lived fairly close to each other. And so by looking at several populations on Oahu and samplings on Molokai as well, um, Hannah Osland plans to do detailed body scans of the bobtail squid that she found in these areas and compare them to get more conclusive results. And she thinks that she may find um, more proof of these distinct genetic differences between these populations. And she said it will also be interesting to see if any of their internal structures uh, that relate to this symbiotic relationship with the bacteria are any different, um, which would indicate a different relationship actually between the host and the bacteria. So that will be interesting to see. Um, another question that she's hoping to answer with her research has to do with population estimates. So no one really knows how many Hawaiian bobtail squid exist right now. And she's working with another graduate researcher to look at, uh, again, genomic samples over uh, a large enough geographical area to be able to uh, give a effective population size estimate. So that will be really interesting. Um, she says it's likely that they live all over Hawaii, but previously they've only been researched on Oahu, and um, researchers have come over and, and seen them on Moloka'i, but she thinks that this is the first time that a researcher um, has collected samples and included Moloka'i in that study, which she did. So. Um, her research will be coming out later this year um, she's doing her master's thesis and so we don't have answers on those questions yet but it'll be interesting to see what she finds
0: well you know it, it, it's a amazing you know when you think okay if, if they're they found them on Oahu they, they know they've got them on Molokai you know we just did a story about snails and I was fascinated to learn that snails are endemic to certain islands so you kind of wonder yeah, could that be the case with this bobtail squid
2: yeah, it'll be really interesting to know more about that. And of course, um, you know, even in her study, she just included Oahu and Molokai, but hopefully that'll um, bring some more answers about this this species. So actually finding them is a little bit tricky. They, they live on these shallow reef flats, but they're only active at night. And during the day they're camouflaged, they stay buried in the sand. And at night they can be found, uh, you know, around 100 to 200 feet out from the shoreline. So I thought, They're bioluminescent, right? They can't be too hard to find at night swimming in the water. But it's actually kind of a trick question.
7: The whole purpose of it is to make it so you cannot see them and likely just a very small amount of light that they're putting out from their dorsal side. So on one hand, it's like when we see them, we always see them from the top. So we're always looking at, you know, their head, the top of their body. Just because we're looking down in the water, we're not seeing the dorsal side, which is where the light would be coming out of. And even in lab settings, a lot of people have tried to film it and, you know, get pictures of it. And I don't think anyone's ever gotten a good video or photo of it. So you cannot really see the actual luminescence going on.
0: Interesting. So you you have me intrigued. Now I want to go out at night and go look for these things if they really glow in the dark.
2: I know and I mean, maybe we would have to get out some goggles and look at them from from under the water but it's it's really interesting I guess uh, I was reading more up and I guess the US Air Force has reportedly even studied these reflective attributes produced by this phenomenon uh, to help them improve air, aircraft camouflage so it's it's been really widely studied and uh, also used in in learning more about the interaction between bacteria and the human body too because it's it's in the relationship that's been well established. So, very fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah, lots to learn. But thank you so much, Catherine.
2: Thanks for thanks for having me. All
0: right, that was HPR's Catherine Kluet-Pactol. You can find her story online at Hawaii Public uh, Public Radio.org.
8: I'm Bert Lam. Today on ByteMark's Cafe, we find out how digital technology is used for equity and inclusion. We'll hear from content accessibility advocates to find out how assistive technology can enhance the user experience. That's today at 6:30 p.m. on ByteMark's Cafe.
6: Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services, GreenBuildingHawaii.com.
0: Think you've got the chops to be on the air? HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. is the name of a new novel that tells a coming-of-age story of a young woman aspiring to compete in the Mary Monarch's Miss Aloha Hula competition. It also explores the relationship Hawaiians have with the cultural art form and how one finds identity within a family and its history. It's the first book published by Jasmine Iolani Hakes. She grew up in the Kekaua, Keokaha area in Hilo. She also spent many years with Halau Okekuhi and put herself through college as a professional luau dancer. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked to Higgs about what inspired her to write the book.
8: In your book, you really explore how bloodlines and relationships impact identity. Is that something that you wrestled with or that fascinated you growing up?
3: Uh, both. Very much so. I think you know, I was born at home. And so the running joke was that if I hadn't been, you know, my mom never would have believed that I was hers because I'm so fair and I have these blue eyes and I was, it looks so different from the rest of the family. And so growing up, I was very self-conscious of that. And also add that to my middle name and me being very aware of the responsibility of that name and being given that name of how do I reconcile these two things? Because in my mind, I don't look like what i think i should be in order to fulfill this responsibility in some way right as a hula dancer or as someone who who does something as as a gift to this culture and to where i'm from and so i wrestled with that a lot because i i just felt like is my white skin something that means i don't i'm not from here and i think also growing up in the 80s and 90s where you had leading up to the apology bill all those protests. Right. And so it was like the first time you drive down the street and it was like, how go home. And I'm like, do they mean me? And like, if they do then where am I going to go? I've never, you know, and, and I used to ask my mom, like, well, what am I? Cause that's our capital, right? That's, that's how we, we communicate. And, and she would say you're cosmopolitan. And she was said that since when I was a kid of like, you're, you're a citizen of the world. And I was like, no, ma, that's not what i like, that's not helpful. You know, I need something more tangible than that. What am I? And, and she would say, well, you're, you're all these different things. And my grandpa would say, you know, you're Puerto Rican and Filipino and all those people that came to Hawaii to work sugarcane and all those things. But also, you know, like he, he would say, we are Hawaiian. It's just not on our birth certificate. And I thought, well, I, so I can't claim any of those things if they're not on my birth certificate and in Hawaii, that that's such a big deal and I knew it was, but I didn't ever want to ask, what am I if I don't have those things on there? You know, and I think that really, really stuck with me of where, you know, where you belong, if it's not clear, if you don't have that birth certificate to say I'm from France and and I'm French and and easy. And then you go from there as far as developing your individual person. And so it really, really bothered me for a long time of of that. And I think The book was a way for me to finally have the courage to explore that, that fear and that vulnerability, but what it turned into ultimately was more of a like, well, if I don't have that on my birth certificate, what is my cultural responsibility to where I'm from, to my home and to my children, right? I have one child that has it on her birth certificate and one that doesn't. So is their cultural responsibility and their cultural inheritance different and, and I don't know. I only have questions, but I think it was a way, a very vulnerable way, but also a, a way to ask the questions that I know there's not really clear answers to. And everybody, everybody might say something different about it. You know, there's no book to refer to, just to look that question up. Right. Go, oh, okay, easy, you know.
8: <laughs> so. Right. And there's no established guidelines either. I feel like maybe sometime in the future, maybe there should be some Hawaiian leaders and, and maybe some fair skinned Hawaiians that kind of talk about that. And how do we change our mindset so that we're yeah. not just looking at everybody's color of their skin all the time?
3: And I think, yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and so it was really super scary. Cause I mean, it's something we all have feelings about. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was like, well, I'm just putting myself out there, you know, <laughs> in front of this firing squad. Cause it is something that is very relevant to current day politics. And there's so many implications to any way you look at it, right? But I also feel like what I had to do was I had to understand how we got here. And so I was being given from my aunties like like old journals where, you know, people they would like missionaries or people that would come over to Hawaii, they, they draw, this is what a Hawaiian looks like. This is what the nose looks like. This is how dark their skin is. And then the introduced blood quantum thing. And we've so not just in Hawaii, but around the world, we've so internalized that kind of thinking of we don't even define ourselves. We're just going off of this definition that's been given to us. And it's not necessarily just my problem. It's also like my problem for one of my best friends who inherited her place in line for Hawaiian homelands, finally gets it, spends all her resources and attention trying to build the house and meet, you know, keep the lease, And her kids don't have enough quantum to inherit it and so then what you know and so we just keep accepting this this definition that's been given and so again I don't I don't have any like well here's what we should do going forward how to fix it but it was it was good I think for me to understand where my angst my personal angst about what's on my birth certificate and what isn't where that came from you know and and it is heartbreaking and what I didn't expect was to hear from so many people in America that have reached out to me that say, I look howle and I'm so I've always been so self-conscious to say I'm Hawaiian, even if it's on my birth certificate because I wasn't born there. And so who 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 is Hawaiian enough? You know, is that just a small small few? And if so, then how do we help them keep this culture alive? If we have no responsibility, you know, so I, I just had all these like, well, I care and, and this is my home. And so how, and I see all like my family and my community, and you must see this too. Like now so many people are finding ways, right. To like make it a better place and make it more community yeah. and start businesses and do all these things. And so I guess it. this was my attempt to contribute to that a little bit to that, like, well, let's move forward. And how do we do that is maybe just understanding a little bit of how what mess got us here.
8: There's a lot of context in your novel as well. You include a lot of accounts of Hawaiian history. There's like this new wave of, of books from local authors coming out that are telling these stories that are rooted in real life experiences and also interweave Hawaiian history. What was your decision behind including Hawaiian history in your novel?
3: For me, I didn't want to... I, I'm not a historian, and if I had if I had told myself I was setting out to do what Hula eventually became, I would have laughed it off because I felt so unqualified to write something like that with that kind of scope. But when I wrote the simple story of this Nopaka family and their their tensions and what they were struggling to reconcile and what the differences were between perspective of generations... I would, didn't have the liberty to assume a mainstream reader or even somebody from Hawaii would fully understand the history or the context of w- what they're fighting about. You know, like you can talk about certain peoples and and you don't have to explain why they're angry or disenfranchised. But I think for a lot of people in Hawaii, you do, most people around, the at least people that I, I've i met and, and come across across paths with, you know, throughout my travels and stuff, they don't have any concept of anything. And and I don't blame them. When I was growing up, I was in school anyway, in public school, I learned only the year Hawaii became a state. We covered it in one day, in one sentence, and that's it, you know? And so I felt like I wanted to get into it. I wanted to not have to hold back all the nuance and complications and stuff like that. And in order to do that, I had to build it out.
8: Over the last few years, we've seen more and more stories about Hawai'i by Hawaiians and the people who live here that share a starkly different reality than those on the outside have been brought up to believe. We've seen it in movies. We've seen it in television and in books. What would you like readers to take away from your novel?
3: I think primarily the key thing that a reader, a mainstream reader, somebody outside of Hawai'i could take away from this is the simple paradigm shift of Hawaii is not a destination. It's a place. And it doesn't mean you don't go there, but when you're visiting a place, you read up about it. You go with kind of open eyes. You want to visit things and you kind of walk at least in general. I, I feel like you'd walk with a slightly softer step and be aware of a culture and be an awe of it and want to learn about it. And People don't do that when you're going to a destination, right? You think, I'm going to relax, I'm going to read this book, and and I'm going to get a tan. And that's your benchmarks for for what you want out of Hawaii. And so if you read this and you just come away with going, wow, I'm going to a place versus a destination, I think that's a huge, small thing.
8: Thanks so much for your time, Jasmine. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was
0: author Jasmine Iolani Hakes talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Uh, Her first novel, Hula, is now available through HarperCollins Publishers and all major booksellers. Is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio? And we now look to the skies in search of a sleek uh, endemic raptor that symbolizes royalty. In this week's Manu Minute, we learn about one of Hawaii's only native birds of prey. And thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for bringing us its song. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart
4: introduces us to the EO. EO or Hawaiian hawk, is the only native hawk found in Hawaii. Fossil evidence shows they once lived on all the main Hawaiian islands, but today are found only on the Big Island, where their population is considered stable, or perhaps even increasing. Because of this, they were removed from the Federal Endangered Species list just last year. Eo come in two colors. Some are mainly dark, while others are mostly cream-colored with brown backs. You can tell adults from juveniles by the color of their sear or a fleshy patch above their bill. Adult Eo have yellow-colored sears, while young juvenile birds have greenish-blue ones. Unlike many of their cousins from North America that feed mainly on rodents, Eo have evolved more maneuverable wings that allow them to catch forest birds, as there were no mammals in Hawaii until after humans arrived. Eo can be found in native and non-native forests all over the Big Island, from sea level up to over 10,000 feet in elevation. They build platform nests out of sticks in the branches of large trees, and once their young fledge from the nest, may still be fed by their parents for up to nine months, a very long parental care period for a hawk. Eo have shrill, high-pitched calls that sound a bit like their name, Eo are a symbol of royalty, and Ku, the god of war and prosperity, could appear as an eo. They're also considered an aumakua, or ancestral guardian spirit. Fortunately, eo do not appear to be susceptible to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria, like many other Hawaiian birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology.
6: Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, connecting the community with the Manu Oku through programs to promote awareness, appreciation, and conservation of the official bird of Honolulu. Learn more at hiaudubon.org. Between 1989
4: and 2019, the S&P 500 rose 659%. But...
2: The idea that the stock market won't do as well in the near-term future as it has done for the past 30 years strikes me as uh, something uh, worth considering.
4: I'm Kai Ruzdal. A new era for equities, perhaps? We'll talk about that next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6.
0: book author Joan Namkung is well known for her career as a food writer and editor in Honolulu's dailies. She was a founder of Hawai'i's farmers market movement and also happens to be a fiber artist. She's been weaving for over four decades and is a member of the Hawai'i Handweavers Hui, which by the way celebrates its 70th anniversary this month. Nam Kung is a production weaver who travels between her Big Island studio and Honolulu to teach and participate in Hui classes. She sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to talk about the group's upcoming show, Surrounded by Water. You know,
9: weaving just developed out of an interest in doing crafts. I grew up with my mother, who was a seamstress, taught me to sew. I used to do embroidery when I was a kid, a little bit of knitting, so I've always sort of been around textiles and stuff. And so I took a weaving class at one point back in the 80s, early 80s, at Bishop Museum when they were teaching weaving. And then later on at what is now the Honolulu Museum of Art School, they had weaving classes. And that's probably really the basis where I learned to weave on a floor loom and got really interested. And this is probably
5: in the mid 80s. In the mid 80s, okay. Yeah. For people who have only heard about weaving, never really had that interaction, a floor loom. Can you just put me into that space? Well, a floor loom can be anywhere from 20
9: to 40 inches or 60 inches wide, usually made out of wood. And it involves, it's a mechanical thing. There's treadles that you step on with your feet and you beat with your hand. There are heddles and shafts. And the thing about floor looms is... It isn't any different from a loom that people used a couple thousand years ago. Basically, looms are all the same. They hold threads in a vertical position, and you cross them in a horizontal way to interlace them. And all looms are basically the same. I think just about every culture has its own form of weaving, because once people learn to make thread out of whether it was animals or cotton later on or from plants, then they interlaced it, and that's weaving. And so if you travel throughout the world, everybody's got a form of weaving. Mm. And it was important because it provided clothing, and it provided things for the house, towels, sheets, blankets, things to keep you warm, all kinds of textiles that we today take for granted because we just go to the store and buy them. Right. Do you
5: make your own fiber? I do not.
9: I don't spin and I don't dye. And there are a number of us who are hand weavers that do all of the above. There's lots of spinners and dyers. I just choose not to Mm -hmm. just because I just love weaving. And so you focus on the weaving? I focus on the
5: weaving, yeah. Knowing that the, the Hui itself has been around for 70 years, for somebody who's just hearing about it today, Explain a little bit more of it. Okay.
9: Well, the Hui started out back in the 50s, a group of women who were interested in weaving, and there was a weaving program at the University of Hawaii. And so they started this group, and they, they would weave fibers, plant materials. They were headquartered at Foster Gardens for many years. Eventually, they were at the Honolulu Museum of Art School at Lini and then that was kind of where weaving was, has been taught since the mid-80s. Obviously, today, weaving is more of a hobby rather than a, a functional necessity. But we just all love it. Right.
5: We are here today because the Hawaii Hand Weavers Hui is putting out the call for submissions. Yes, we have a show coming up August 2nd through the
9: 19th at the Downtown Arts Center. This is our 70th anniversary year. Biennial exhibition. The theme is surrounded by water. You know, it's kind of like: what does water, what does it mean to you? What does it involve today? What inspires you when you think of water? And starting July 1st, we're taking registrations for pieces for this show. And it's in collaboration with the Glass Fusion Group. So it's glass as well as handwoven items. The only stipulation is a portion of it has to be handwoven. But it could be a functional textile, it could be an art piece, it could involve metal, it could be ceramics. Just something has to be interlaced or handwoven. And really art is functional in its own way, right? Because it captures ideas and feelings and provides an emotional response. Right. So we're inviting all artists to join us in you know expressing their their views of water particularly because we live in an island situation we're surrounded by it so there's there's a lot of room for experimentation we welcome people from all over the world to join us it's just it's just a way of trying to come up with something and really challenge yourself to do something fun and creative different from what you would normally do
5: okay so it's a really good opportunity to get your work out there and in your own studio now, what sort of looms do you have? Describe your studio. (laughs) Well, let's say I have three looms. One is a
9: table loom, it's small, that I use for workshops and for sampling. And my workhorse loom is an eight-shaft Gilmore, which is about 32 inches wide, and it's maybe a footprint of about three by three feet. Mm -hmm. And then I have a bigger loom that's a draw loom, which is a different kind of loom. And that's probably like four feet by six feet. So it's it's a pretty big and tall loom.
5: Yeah. Okay. These looms probably give you a nice workout as well. It is a very physical
9: thing. And it's a matter of coordinating your hands and feet. Mm -hmm. Because your hands are moving and your feet are moving. And they all have to be synchronized to do the right thing in the right order.
5: Right, right. Yeah. How large are your pieces? They can
9: be you know, like the size of a shawl or a scarf. Sometimes I do yardage pieces that are three or four yards long. Just depends, yeah.
5: Well, you definitely, you have that knowledge, you have the experience, but do you ever come across some sort of textile or fiber where you're like, it's so exciting seeing it.
9: You know, definitely textiles that you look at and you go, how did they do this? How did they set this up to get this pattern or The colors to line up in the Mm. same way, and so as a weaver, you start to learn to read cloth Mm. and to figure out which threads are warps, which are the vertical threads, and then what did they do with the weft, and how did they lift those vertical threads to get that pattern?
5: Wow! So So you're a detective. Yeah, in a way, you are investigating. So you see the end product, but because you have a skill, a knowledge base. You can also do some deduction. Yeah, you can go back in steps and see uh, how it's put together. OK. Yeah. And you really have done quite a bit. So I think in my realm of understanding of who Joe Nankun is, I see you as a foodie. Yes, I'm a foodie.
9: I still <laughs> love food. I still love to cook. I still enjoy reading food magazines, food books. I'm still I'm a foodie. Hmm. My license plate is still foodie.
5: And it was really cool to learn this little tidbit of trivia is that you were very instrumental with the farmer's market movement here in, in the state. Yes. Back,
9: I can't even remember what year it was. I was still writing for the Star Advertiser, doing food columns. And as a cook, I wanted to be able to get all the ingredients that the chefs were getting from the farmers, from the new farmers. I said, why don't we have a farmer's market? And so with Dean Okimoto from Nalo Farms at the time, we organized the first farmer's market at KCC. Probably about 15 years ago, I can't even remember the year. Well, I know you're
5: on the Big Island now, but are you ever on Oahu where you're going by KCC? Once in a
9: while, yes. I make it a point to go there. And it's really heartwarming to see some of the original vendors whose children have grown up at the market, and they're still there doing what they did back when. So it was, you know, kind of fueled a whole bunch of young entrepreneurs to do business.
5: It was great. It's just really cool how you, you know, you have the different loves, the different creative aspects, and Mm -hmm. there is that ability for you to, you know, still be doing what you love. Mm -hmm. Is there an overlap of the food and the weaving? Well, I think they're both, you know, cooking
9: is is a form of weaving in in many ways because you've got all these ingredients and you've got to put them together in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cooking is is a form of weaving, I think. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anything else you think we should cover? If anyone's interested in any classes learning about textile arts, just go to hawaiihandweavers.org. There's a whole list of classes, events that you can join. Mm -hmm. And we hope to see more people
0: involved. That was foodie and fiber artist Joan Nam Kung and H.P.R.'s Lillian Song. They were talking about the Hawaii Handweavers Weavers Hui's upcoming biannual exhibition. It's entitled Surrounded by Water. Online registrations are open now for submissions through uh, July 26th. The show kicks off August 2nd at the Downtown Art Center. Details on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, managing tourist hotspots, we get an update. Got a story about over-tourism? Need to sound off? Leave your feedback on our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.